Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. This bonus episode is actually a conversation recorded for another podcast, The End of Tourism. The host is my good friend, Chris Christou, who I initially met through Stephen Jenkinson's Orphan Wisdom School. We've spent many a time gathering on the farm in Ontario where the school is held and have woven threads of companionship over the years. A few months back, he invited me on his show to discuss subjects of which I've rarely spoken publicly, including my former years working for an online travel magazine, my own self-created initiatory adventures to Australia, the paradox of being a traveler in the modern age, and more. I thought it fitting to republish here in full. And so, enjoy my conversation with Chris, Chris too. Welcome to the end of tourism, a podcast about wanderlust, exile, and radical hospitality. For some, tourism can entail learning, freedom, or financial survival. For others, it means the loss of culture, land, and lineage. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories and consequences of modern travel. They are dispatches from the resistance. Also, we recently launched our Patreon page. Podcasts are a lot of work. And they're a lot of work, especially when they're done by just a single person. So uh, if you'd like to support the pod, support this work, uh, and see more episodes and to help build this movement, you can head on over to patreon.com slash the end of tourism. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the end of tourism to help support. Thanks. On this episode, our guest is Ian McKenzie, a filmmaker and writer who lives in the Salish Sea with his partner and young son. For over 13 years, Ian's been tracking the global emergence of new culture. From the desert of Burning Man to the heart of Occupy Wall Street, he has sought and amplified the voices of visionaries, artists, and activists who have been working toward planetary system change. Ian is best known for his films Sacred Economics, Lost Nation Road, Amplify Her, Dear Guardians, and Occupy Love. More recently, he founded the Mythic Masculine Podcast and Network, exploring in-depth conversations about emerging masculinities, as well as a gathering of stories, an online mythopoetic ceremony. Recently, Ian launched the School of Mythopoetics. I met Ian some years ago at the Orphan Wisdom School near Ottawa, Canada. Since then, we've become friends and co-conspirators in the deep work of apprenticing the culture, what is absent in it, and what might be done about it. Ian joins me to discuss the backpacker gap year and the lack of initiation for young men and women the difference between a tourist and a traveler, the theater that the tourist industry creates for tourists, what it means to be a guest, creating ritual space, and finally, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Enjoy. Welcome to the End of Tourism podcast, Ian McKenzie. Mm, Good to be here, brother. It's a pleasure to see you after, it seems like, an incredibly long time. Do you think you'd be able to offer our listeners a little bit of an idea of where you find yourself today, what the world looks like for you, where you are? Indeed. I'm currently in my office here in Comox Valley, which is right in town. 
small town. And uh, I currently look at probably the best donut shop in the whole region. I'm giving them a shout out. Well, they're called Bigfoot Donuts, which is a contrast, though, because where I live actually is out in the forest uh, with my family and um, not too far from here, but it feels real worlds away. And so it's actually nice to be able to traverse, you know, the forest in the city, come in to do work, work like this, you know, good internet connection, and then go out there where there's very little internet connection. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty soggy day after a couple of weeks of uh, biting chill, certainly more so for this region than is normal. And a lot of it's in the melt now and another atmospheric river, as they're called, is barreling through here over the next day. Uh, and there's flood warnings. And of course, you know, there was some major flooding on the West Coast here about a month ago as well. So definitely we're in the midst of wild times, as you probably are in a different way there. Undoubtedly. Yeah. So we've known each other for some seven years, maybe. And uh, maybe just putting you on the spot off the top of your head, you could tell our listeners as well uh, how we met and how we've come to maintain this long distance friendship. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to recall it myself, but I mean, certainly through the orphan wisdom school, I believe with Stephen Jenkinson. Yeah. And uh, mm. I'm trying to recall the first, was it one of the sessions probably on the farm? Yeah. And what, what was your people's called your cohort? The people of mountain longing. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, those who are listening, uh, yeah. In the orphan wisdom school, each cohort sort of has their own name. And I was sort of a roamer. Uh, those earlier years because I was also making a number of films about Stephen and his work. And so I traversed a number of the classes and uh, people mountain longing uh, were uh, a great bunch. So I'm told, uh, and certainly if you are left standing like you and we've continued to sort of roll into the big tent, which is the class that's yeah still willing to, to show up and ask for more, despite how difficult it is to live often what we learn and, and approach in the school. But yeah, I believe uh, that was really where, planted the seed of friendship. And then since, you know, I'm fond memories of different locales from deep in an arcade fire concert in Toronto to being out in the wilderness together, but apart as part of a series of, I wouldn't say quest, but, but a wilderness fast of some kind mm. in service to, to something. And so, yeah, I feel there's a certain bond that's forged and that I appreciate, you know, tending over distance and, and certainly creatively and conversations like this. Mm. Well, it's a great honor to be able to speak to you and to offer this conversation up for our listeners. So you are the the host of the Mythic Masculine podcast, an excellent, incredible podcast for anyone who's listening right now. Please check it out and you'll have uh, links to that via the End of Tourism website and social media. And so, Ian, I wanted to ask you in regards to masculinity and travel, if you could offer us a little bit about your own personal experience and your travels. How have your travels influenced your sense of masculinity or your understanding of masculinity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to reflect on this too within the context of tourism in particular, because I think maybe these are the two main hubs of the conversation, you know, tourism, its consequence, masculinity, culture. And I think certainly there is a relationship between the call it a rite of passage or initiation or lack thereof, which happens often through travel in more modern times when it's not culturally practiced, can also be known as the gap year um, where there is this break between, you know, life as it has been for a youth and then this uh, journey or this walkabout. And 
then some sort of reconstitution on the other side. And, you know, for me, my relationship to travel into that period was certainly inadvertent or not un- unconscious like it is for many, but I was just drawn to travel, right? Like, like many are certainly around that time. Although I was somewhat of a late bloomer in terms of my family that I uh, actually, I'd never been on a plane until I think it was around 17 or 18. You know, my family just, we didn't travel like that. We didn't really have money to afford things like flights. So it wasn't until I myself was working and I had saved up enough that actually my first trip was to Los Angeles, actually, first air flight uh, to see a friend. And, um, you know, that was star studded and the, the wonder of it all. But then it was actually after that, again, after high school, even a little, little bit into my university, I kind of made that immediate step, which, you know, I hear at the time, a lot of cautionary tales, right? Of like, don't leave the momentum you have to like get a job or whatever it is. And then of course, you know, two years in, I was like, what am I doing? I have no idea. I'm just sort of wandering aimlessly through university. And I remember I saw, it was a poster for Australia. You know, it was a, what do they call it? Like a co-op position or some or, or no work, work abroad, right? This sort of work mm-hmm. trade sort of thing, you know, temporary visa. And uh, prior to that, I'd done some travel in a summer to Europe. I sort of did the, you know, the, the backpacking trip around Europe for about a month with a former girlfriend. And that, you know, we were sort of in our bubble of, but getting a taste of that, you know, that initial exploring new horizons, new places. And then later on, about a year or so after is when, you know, I felt that call really in the heartbreak of that relationship ending to get as far away as possible as it could. And, you know, I saw this sign for Australia and I thought, hey, that's, pretty much as farthest away I could get from uh, where I am in North America. And so I followed that. I saved up as much as I could. And then I, you know, bought the ticket and headed there. And it was actually, I uh, booked a stop in Fiji or there was a stop over there on the way down. And I was able to spend a couple of weeks there prior to landing in Australia. And it was actually in Fiji that 9-11 happened. And I remember, you know, really being on this small remote island and the the tourism host or the, the local said, you know, hey, did you hear the news? I was like, what? I just come out of this grass hut, you know, on this tiny little island. I was like, no, I didn't hear the news. And, you know, two planes hit the Trade Center Towers and they pulled out a TV, you know, CNN greenily showing and, and you know, there it was. And uh, that was quite a bang, you know, at a time that was already a sort of liminal for me in these between two worlds. Hmm. And then I eventually landed in Australia and uh, spent the next eight months. It is this reality check of both, pushing myself to a place where yeah, I didn't know anybody and I really wanted to be challenged in a lot of ways. And then also, you know, that recognition of like, oh, wherever you go, there you are. And uh, the same heartbreak that I'd fled followed with me. And, um, but really became, yeah, I would call it a, some kind of initiatory ground, you know, unawares. And, uh, you know, we could get into that in a moment, but I would say, you know, again, as I reflect back now, that that time really was that quest to leave it all behind, which was a longing really that I carried and certainly many carry, particularly young men, for that very thing to be visited upon them by olders, by elders, by uncles, you know, to, to really show them that they're different, that they're actually, you know, that there is some kind of break from the old and and stepping into adulthood or stepping into manhood, whatever you want to call it. And of course, for many of us, including me, it never happened and I was left to do it. Uh, inadvertently on my own. Wow. It's fascinating to hear you speak about these things. I had at probably a young age, although we're, I think, a few years apart, the same flight routes, basically, from my first few trips to California and then later mm-hmm. to Australia through Fiji, if you can believe it. But I'd like to ask you then, I guess you mentioned that like this heartbreak followed you, right? And that 
there was this sense of perhaps escapism from having to deal with that. And this is something that has become or is becoming epidemic right now is this desire to escape, especially in Anglo-North America, the desire to get on a plane and go anywhere because of, well, the, the consequences of the pandemic, right? What did you, in retrospect, find about this way of perhaps trying to, you know, avoid the, the real pain at hand in the moment and how might we, you know, extrapolate that into what's happening today? Mm. Yeah. You know, I, it's interesting too, right? Because I would say maybe for there in Australia, right? I mean, it's still like a Western culture. And so in some ways, you know, and they speak English and with an accent or, you know, of course they would never say that I have the accent, but there's a certain familiarity, right? So it wasn't really that far quote out of my comfort zone, at least culturally speaking, you know, I learned a bunch of things like, Jumbucks and tucker bags and and all this and that was still carried a, certainly an element of being confronted by things outside of my own sense of how I understood the world but it wasn't really until later actually when I went to Southeast Asia where I did that you know quote did that trip um, went to Thailand Cambodia Laos and for me I, I guess that probably that was the first time I suppose Fiji as well where there was a clear disparity between the tourist in this case you know the backpacker and then the the locals, of course, depending on the area, but it was often just more obvious. And so in that sense, that disparity became more, that became its own kind of confrontation. And, uh, you know, you, you really start to see this sort of performative or veneer of hospitality, you know, mm. performed by the locals. I'm, of course, I'm th thinking of Bangkok and the, I can't remember what that strip's called, right? In Bangkok, but it's like the strip, right? But again, that kind of thing is very obvious, like very clearly catered towards these tourists. And it just became you know, the cliches were just rife. And I just, I couldn't ignore that there was a consequence to being there in a way that maybe was less obvious when I was in somewhere like, say, Australia. And so, yeah, I'd say I started to lose a bit of the sheen in terms of travel, in terms of that it would somehow provide that level of something that I wanted, that inadvertent something. But at the same time, I was still drawn to travel and as a kind of spiritual possibility, um, not to turn others into a kind of spiritual objectification as if they were there just for me, but really to try to glean some kind of conscious growth. You know, again, I'm using that specifically then, but it, it coalesced as a magazine. I, I actually started publishing a sort of online blog uh, called Brave New Traveler, which was really aimed at that, right? This idea of speaking about the spiritual or philosophical dimensions of travel, which ended up doing pretty well, like as in people started to dig it and it was sort of the golden age of, of blogging around that time. And I worked with a lot of writers who, who really spoke to this dimension. And that caught the attention actually of another group or another sort of social network of travelers that had sort of sprouted around that time, uh, Matador. And they, they were early days at the time. Again, they were still more of a just a direct social network. And they reached out to me and asked me to come on board and actually help them develop their publication side of their network. And that certainly was a big deal for me at the time. You know, I was like, oh, wow, now I can really focus largely primarily, right, on on travel and, and the realm of travel as a focus, right? Like that was a big deal. I was working at copywriting at a different company at the time. This is sort of my mid-20s. And so I did. I joined them. And Again, I felt drawn or wrapped up in now much more of this whole ecosystem, right, of travel 
really travel commodification, right? Which mm-hmm. is something I'm sure you've spoken at, at length here on the podcast, um, which I could, you know, I could touch on a lot in the conversation to come. But I'll just say that, again, I started to lose uh, kind of automatic sense that like travel was inherently meaningful or it was inherently good. Or, like all these mantras that is, tend to get trotted out, right, is this sense of mm-hmm. it opens horizons and, you know, bridges, borders and all this stuff. And I started to see the impact on place and how it reorchestrated place and made me wonder again, you know, what was the deeper longing there, which, you know, I would call now a deeper longing to, to be from somewhere again, that, that permeates so much of the desire to be elsewhere in a place where the sense of belonging has been fugitive for some time. So that was certainly alive for me and has remained certainly, I mean, in many ways, maybe that's what led us to the orphan wisdom school because we were sort of fed up with looking elsewhere for it. And uh, Mm -hmm. we found ourselves there. Mm. Cultural orphans, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's so much of what my travels and and really many people's travels, especially backpackers, are founded in. These notions of searching out culture. And that the kind of hidden understanding that one only needs to go searching out culture elsewhere if there's none of it at home right? Or that it's hidden at home or an endangered species or that it's just not good enough, right? Mm. Um, well, also, this is coming back to me now a little bit too, but just the conceit that often would come up of, you know, maybe you'd, you'd encounter this a lot. And I probably was in, you know, participating in it sometimes was, you know, oh, uh, I'm not a tourist. I'm a traveler. Right. Right. I'm not, <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not a tourist. I'm a traveler. I mean, it was like often even said in that kind of tones, right? Like one was this cheesy cliche, uh, you know, package tour. And the other was, you know, the one off the beaten path. And, uh, and you know, this is at a time too, when you could, you know, walk down the strip in Bangkok there and book a tour to basically wherever you wanted with other grungy folk like you and, you know, call that, oh, I'm not a tourist. I'm a, I'm a traveler. But of course, those kind of false distinctions break down, you know, if you really try to hold them up. And they do try to create a sense of that one is not commodifying the place or objectifying the place, right? I think it's like trying to salvage a sense of, oh, I really, you know, get culture and I really am not animated by the very same thing that these package tour tourists are, um, which, yeah, to me, so much turns up to be false. Right. The the commodification of the, the rebel, right? And this is what I think in a lot of the literature they refer to as the anti-tourist, who, mm-hmm. like the anti-hero, is still a tourist or still a hero, mm-hmm. right? The inverse still holds the foundation of the thing and the function of it and what's what, what it's being asked to do within the society or within the culture or, and in this case, within the industry, right? And all of these, all of these things get commodified one way or the other. Well, this, yeah, this strikes me though, again, you know, I'll just touch on Matador for a second though, who, mm-hmm. again, have continued to thrive thrive in a way to this day. And I ended up leaving the company in 2012, actually to pursue documentaries full time. My film that I was working on with the director of Elcor Ripper, Occupy Love was just being released the following year. And so that that was really, you know, it was on good terms. And but I was really wanted to pursue documentary in that way. And, and so I did and I've tracked them a bit since. And I mean, I'll just say for me, what stands out is that initially, at the time when I was entered into that industry, that you, there was a sort of ethos of impartiality, right? With reviews and with articles like Lonely Planet and these mm-hmm. kind of things. Like they was, it was very clear to them that they were like impartial, right? Taking freebies or like any of this kind of stuff that would slant their 
impartial reviews or their recommendations was at least it was already shifting then, but it was generally, there was a sense of it was dirty to take bribes. Like it was a little bit like that. Right. Mm. And, uh, and I'll say the difference now, I mean, particularly with something like somebody like Matador is, you know, basically all of their major contracts are with tourism boards. Right. And, and their content is, is paid for directly by the tourism boards in these places. And they're transparent about it. Like as in, it'll say, you know, in partnership with tourism Colorado or in partnership with tourism Australia. And so for me, it's just so interesting to to watch that flip that, you know, what was initially a sense of pride of like, this is just pure review or whatever it is, no sway, but it's now the exact opposite. And, And people don't seem to mind, or at least in that sense, they almost expect it, right? Like influencers and all this stuff, they almost expect that, oh yeah, of course, they partner with the boards and they'll recommend the best things. But of course, even then you're so far down the commodified rabbit hole of of distortion of what it would mean to be in a place and sort of not be swayed or conditioned by where they're trying to show you are the places that you should go. Because that's usually the conceit with the traveler, right? The traveler kind of goes where they're called and isn't seduced by these kinds of things. But of course, you know, that's all there is now, it seems, is mm. essentially these tracks of authorized things to do and places to go. And of course, you're not even away from your smartphone really, unless you deliberately wrestle it away from yourself. I can't even imagine really going on those trips and having a smartphone with me where I could talk to all of my friends at any time, at any moment. You know what I mean? Like that kind of like, I didn't, so I I would never really leave is what it would feel like, right? You would just sort of be somewhere else, but you would never have that break from the world that you know, because they're just so accessible right there. So I just think that, yeah, the landscape is so different in some ways of even this idea of stepping away from the things you know to create some kind of, I don't even know if that's possible now to have that quote, even unconscious rite of passage anymore because of how commodified the landscape and how accessible your reality that you were and and your networks were and are, are still uh, available to you. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I think I stopped traveling and I'll be honest, right? I'll be sincere. I'll say touring, right? I stopped Mm -hmm. touring in maybe 2013 or 14 and that was around the time when Wi-Fi just started popping up everywhere. But I don't have a memory of being able to do that. And I think most tourists today, it'd be difficult for them to remember a time where that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Right. So I wanted to ask you regarding this commodification, this commercialization of what we might otherwise call a kind of pseudo initiation or rite of passage that, you know, young men and women that travel the world to do. How do you think through notions such as adventure, heroism, initiation, how do you think these things have been commodified by the travel industry? For example, adventure tourism is, is a huge, huge uh, aspect of the industry and becoming more and more common everywhere you go. Yeah. I mean, there's interesting themes to touch on, I think for sure, because I think that there's something like, if I think about what is the function of commodification, right. And if I'll draw upon a little bit of another author, Charles Eisenstein, who's spoken at length about this idea of in sacred economics, right. Which is a short that I did with him based on his book quite a while ago. But there's this idea that, you know, to commodify means to take something that was freely offered or, uh, maybe I'll say free in, as in there was some kind of exchange, not barter, but there was some kind of relationship required 
to reciprocation, right? The flow of those gifts in a way. And in commodification, what that does is it actually takes those things, puts a price tag on it, and then sells it back to you, or it mediates that exchange and turn into a transaction. And so the consequence is, is more than maybe as benign as it might sound, because essentially what it's doing is it takes away the labor, right? Like essentially the labor of, of relationship or the labor of work. And this is something, of course, Stephen Jenkinson has spoken to at length of this idea that work is something you're least inclined to do, right? And so much of what I would consider to be the things that are actually, I don't know, initiatory or involving a rite of passage or the the sort of hard labor of, you know, finding a way in another place and, and actually building relationship in a meaningful way, not to tour it, just vanishes when it's just, hey, click here, buy the package. But it's understandable, right? Because what it does is that it builds an industry, of course, off of that very taking care of things, right? Fixing, it's making the pathway frictionless, right? I mean, aside from for money, of course, you save up the money and then, you know, you can do that thing. You can do the bungee jump off the bridge or you can have that, you know, deep culinary moment with a local. And like, it, they just become experiences that are sort of canned or, you know, ready to be checked off the list, right? And so and there's a consequence to that, of course, is that you can have the experience, but there's no kind of soul tempering. Maybe I'll say it that way right? Because there's no work involved, right. according to that understanding, right? And because literally, you just become like a ghost, you move through these places, you know, have your experience, take your photo, even if it feels real for an afternoon or whatever it is, and then you're gone. And then the place maybe continues being itself after you're gone. So th- there's some consequence to that spirit labor vanquished because of the mediation through this commodification and this um, really objectification. Mm. Yeah, certainly. The ghost instead of the guest, right? Yeah. I mean, all you have to do is show up with the right amount of money and um, your experience is there for you. Yeah. Right. And in fact, in some ways, right, demand it. If you don't get it, it's like, hey, you know, mm. I pay money for it. Yeah, just the entire world pushed through an ever-shrinking pinhole of customer service demands and expectation. And the people patching the leaks on that boat are, at the very worst, at the mercy of the industry and international peace and, I guess, health. And at the very least, dehumanized by foreign entitlement and business owners trying to find the bottom line. Uh, The one that keeps getting lowered further and further. And that this is somehow the context and the background for what a lot of people would claim to be initiatory, initiatory rites of passage. And, and this is the, the structure and the style that it entails. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to even ask you, did you have a similar moment of either revelation or disappointment around this reckoning? You know, and was it in a particular place or with a particular experience where you felt like, oh, wait, you know, you'd sort of been chasing a phantom that suddenly you know, you recognized. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I stretched it out as long as I possibly could before the reckoning came down and it started for, I think the first few years and just kind of tourist exploration and going to places that 
I thought would be interesting, going to a lot of ruins, even though I wasn't particularly a fan of history in any way. It was just something to kind of be a spectator in front of, right? To witness what I thought and what I imagined and what I hoped would be kind of liminal moments, right? Of in front of these ruins of old cultures that perhaps had something that I could learn from, that I could garner, that I could... But at the end of the day, I was just a spectator, right? And so so after a few years, I began to do some volunteerism work, mm-hmm. helping to build natural construction community centers in Guatemala and things like that, and just to learn again. And then this kind of notion of well, the catharsis isn't, it's not holding up, right? The addiction needs to be stronger because it no longer carries its potency as it once did. And then, so I decided I needed to specifically be engaging in learning and healing experiences in the Amazon jungle and in places like Mexico and doing, you know, traditional African ceremonies in Europe, that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, after almost 10 years of doing this, I realized that I just needed to be somewhere, that I just needed to be somewhere instead of anywhere or everywhere. And so I found myself in Oaxaca and I just stayed. And after six months of being here, that was my realization. And, you know, it's a tough thing to do because I feel like that escapism And for me, particularly, it was regarding modern life, growing up in a metropolis in Canada and finding it so incredibly spiritually impoverished that you just keep looking for the next place, the next place that'll somehow, you know, comfort or satisfy those needs. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, you realize that the capacity or willingness to move and to keep moving is the thing that stops that from happening. Mm-hmm. The wanderlust is the subversion of the thing you're looking for because the thing you're looking for can't be found. It, it has to be made, right? Mm-hmm. Which is home, which is culture. It has to be cultivated. So mm-hmm. that's that's the tragic decade-long story of, <laughs> of, of, you know, how I had to come to that in the way mm-hmm. that I did. You know, there's certainly a poetic return, you know, in there. And I mean, it might've been maybe Robert Frost or Thoreau, you know, something like, you know, I have to travel around the world to recognize the dew on your front lawn is just as sparkly and beautiful or to see it anew, you know, something like that. So there is that sort of poetic romantic recognition, but then I'm curious again, what is it then by not moving? Like, what is one confronted by? I mean, it sounds like, like you're saying this sort of spiritual poverty or cultural poverty, Mm. but for example, for you in a place like Oaxaca, you've engaged in certain things as a way, I think, of trying to contend with this very thing. Like, what does it mean to be somewhere of which is not the place where you were born to, nor ancestrally recognized, right. but you're engaged in, in being there in a certain way as a way of, what, is it a redemption, spirit work, culture work? I mean, I believe so, but I'd be curious to hear you speak to that. Like, what does it mean to not move and to engage in this place where you are? Mm. Well, I think to, to not move means to be willing to apprentice the weather in a place and time, right? It means being willing to sit and bear the storm of, of the times and 
to deepen your understanding of it and how you might serve its subversion, right? How you might participate in whatever redemptive work can be utilized in order to court better worlds. So I think for me, it was very clear that once I decided I was going to stay in Oaxaca, that I understood and I would understand myself principally as a guest in this place, no matter how long I stayed, no matter if I got my residency or citizenship or got married or had kids or was even recognized, you know, by the community or anything like that, that I would always be a guest in this place. After years of contending with that, I realized that, you know, the same thing would apply to me if I had never left Toronto, Mm. right? That my willingness and capacity to be at home in a place or a citizen of a place or time is dependent on my understanding of how I proceed as a guest in that place and how that might inform an understanding of what it might mean to be a host. And this relationship between the two that bears generally what we would call hospitality if it wasn't specifically something that had been co-opted by industry. So I think that's what it comes down to is, is understanding yourself as a guest in a place and what that means and the consequences of that and what the consequences of you being a guest or just being in another place is if your being there is temporary, right? Are you still a guest in a place if, if you can't proceed with a cognizant and reflexive understanding of, of your consequences in that place? So if you leave, you have no capacity to understand the fallout, both of you being there in the first place and how it rippled out over time, those consequences. And then, of course, you're leaving you can't gather up a consequence for what that did or does. I mean, you, you can try, but your absence precludes that. Mm. And so that's something that I had to contend with leaving Toronto and having family and friends get further and further away in some respect over the course of years. Mm. You know, as you're speaking as well, it made me think of, um, you might've seen one of the documentaries that came out a couple years ago now. It was on the Fire Festival. Um, oh yeah Rockle do you remember that yeah <laughs> and uh, I think I saw the might have been the Netflix one but what was you know tragic and fascinating was how the producers had put forth this grand idea of you know having this big you know festival in some remote island but mm-hmm. um, yeah it was very clear that the place through their own you know heaping on all these promises of riches and, and big tourists and all the rest the place really um, you know contorted itself to meet this, you know, impending bash, you know, this impending festival that was going to happen. And uh, those of you who've maybe seen the film or maybe read about it, of course, know that it sort of sort of happened, but it was a total train wreck. And, you know, none of the infrastructure was there. And all these bands, you know, people canceled and, and, you know, all these very generally very rich people who could afford to go were outraged and, and horrified. And, but one of the things that was really just deeply sorrowing was actually they interviewed a woman, uh, a local woman who ran like a restaurant, right? The local restaurant. And uh, they'd been serving these tourists while they were there for those couple of weeks when nothing happened. Either that or she, you know, fronted the cost of the food or something like that. And, or the festival is going to pay them, you know, there was some kind of debt to be paid there. 
and they never did, right? Of course, because the, the whole thing crashed and burned. And this woman was, you know, weeping on camera, saying that she's ten thousand or so in debt or something, you know, American, and I don't know what that was in the local currency, but essentially, really ruined for life. It felt like um, mm. because of the willingness to to distort on behalf of these, you know, the promise of these people coming. And so for me, that really felt like part of that reckoning, like you're saying, like the fallout of your presence and your absence, and even the promise of your presence. I mean, as a tourist and, and touristing, and uh, just the fragility of that, of course, uh, which can seem very solid when everything's humming and the boats are arriving, you know, willy nilly. And I mean, I'm thinking as well of, of course, the pandemic fallout of so many places that, you know, ghost towned once the you know plane stopped flying and everybody was told to stay home and that so many lo- of these places that really relied upon of course this steady influx i i remember reading some stories about yeah how devastated these places were because again they relied upon the octane of tourism and, and again there's a certain tragedy in that of how fragile again that really is in a time when mm-hmm. this kind of world travel jet setting you know slick international consumer commodification is floating on a sea of cheap oil and in that sense is vulnerable certainly to disruption and also any long-term viability of course seems some suspect and so yeah i guess i'm really hearing in your sense that in some ways that the whole market of commodified tourism is meant to keep you away from understanding your consequence because it just mm. wants your money you're not allowed to really see you know the coral reefs bleaching or the black market, you know, in the shanty next to the fancy hotel and all that stuff. I mean, which is so much, of course, of how the market economy works is really separating these things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now even, even these things are becoming tourist attractions, right? Mm -hmm. There's a kind of little known category of tourism recently coined in the last, well, actually it's in the last 10 years, but called extinction tourism. Right. And sometimes you see things like this where social media influencers sneak into Chernobyl, right, to get photos there and people going to to places like old mines, for example. And while there might be the possibility of mourning what's happening in this regard in the world, it's clearly this really strange, inverted kind of glorification of the very thing that we would otherwise mourn and perhaps try to heal. Mm. I wanted to come back to masculinity for a moment. Mm. And I wanted to ask, you know, about something that I'm sure you speak about quite a bit, that I know you speak about a fair amount on the podcast and in your projects, which is the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell. And, and we were speaking a little bit about it earlier, like this notion of like an initiatory rite of passage however kind of commodified and really in the end false it might be that there is this notion that even if we do this and even if we somehow achieve this transformation into adulthood that we're always doing it in the context of other cultures right and other cultures have to bear the brunt of that quote-unquote initiation which is often just a way of contending with the lack of initiation. So without a kind of achieved coming of age rite of passage for especially young men in uh, Western culture, that the consequence of not having it is projected 
abroad, overseas, and onto other cultures where they don't host initiation, but they host the consequence of not being initiated. Mm. Right. And I'm wondering as two men who seem to have had similar experiences in regards to this kind of thing in our earlier lives. What's your take on this idea that when tourists return home, even if they learn something that there's often no community to be initiated into, right? Can we even call it initiation? Especially if what's happening, the tourism, the travel to other places is a way of kind of contending with the lack of initiation and then basically leaving it there as baggage almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd be happy to weigh into that territory. You know, it comes to me, I like what you said there, the place bears the consequence of the lack of initiation. And, you know, what comes to mind, of course, is a lot of tourists behaving badly. Um, you know, I saw it a lot. I mean, particularly younger men when I was also in that age range, sort of late 20 or late teens, early 20s, many encounters where I was in some place, you know, Southeast Asia or wherever, and just the complete shenanigans, right, that this jackasses were doing that place of this, you know, they're just having fun or just being deliberately confronting or aggressive, drunk, like, you know, all those behaviors that are sort of easily recognizable. And I had to watch so many locals that, you know, it was their restaurant or it was their, you know, grocery store or whatever it is, sort of smile and put up with it largely uh, because there was this sort of golden aura of, well, they're tourists, right? So they have money and you don't want to make them upset. So, I mean, that really didn't sit well with me, right? And in so many ways, I think it speaks to what you're saying, like bearing the consequences of a lack of initiation, particularly, let's say for young men who can behave really poorly when they don't have those tempering pathways, you know, into confronting a sense of their own consequence and their own, their own wake, you know, before and after they enter somewhere and leave. And so I absolutely think that's, that's a deep consequence of that. And in terms of the hero's journey and this idea, the break from everything one knows and hearing the call and stepping off into this initiatory ground. I mean, by and large, I think that the most sort of faulty part of that, I mean, at least from the experience of the the subjective, because, you know, the tourist can go and have lots of experiences, of course, and, and pat themselves on the back and, and have great journal entries and photos and the rest. And really feel that they they did something right. Like oh, wow, I you know ventured far and I had all these wild you know experiences, and then they come home as I did as well, and by and large, nothing's changed, right? But you know, when I was in Australia, I came back after eight months, and literally it felt like nothing changed. Like everybody was doing the exact same jobs, uh, the same rhythms, you know, the place. You know, strangely, I thought it might somehow look different to me. You know, where I I returned to where I grew up, and nope, looked exactly the same familiar in a moment of like, you know, nostalgia, um, or recognition. And then all of a sudden, you know, bland and, you know, boring again, but it was the return and, and wanting that or that deep longing to be recognized is different, right. Which Mm. is what, which is what I think is that initiatory completion, or at least for that cycle, right. Is to feel that people, ah, you know, they just, they recognize you're different. You're no longer that person because that is something that maybe particularly young men as well, really want to feel, right? Like I did something out there, like I'm no longer who I was. But if they return and everybody, including their family and, and others, 
even if you get pretty good conversations out of it, oftentimes though, it's, hey, how was it, right? And if you're foolhardy enough to answer that question, of course, generally it's never as satisfying as it was to live those experiences as it is to talk about them later Mm -hmm. to people that aren't really open or, or able to hear. Right. It's different. And I, you know, I would recommend if I might offer some specificity on, you know, if that is you and you do come back from some sort of, you know, quote, transformational, anything is to craft a bit more of a ritual space for spilling the story. And that that can be a a way to honor both what happened and also the capacity for those present to truly receive the story that can, you know, the medicine that can come from story. So that's possible. But generally, you know, again, even at the time, not something I knew how to do. And so, yeah, returning and then hitting this this deep wall or this malaise, right, of, of, wow, I did all these things and I went away and I had these experiences and I thought I was different and I came back and nothing about me indicates that's actually so. And so it's a tough one. Yeah, because that without that, can one even, can one call it initiation? Can one call it a rite of passage? I mean, one can have great experiences, right, and challenging experiences that do a kind of soul tempering, certainly, but it is the return that really is, the cultural labor, right, that needs to be rewoven. But it also would be the launch pad in a way for those very things, if we're really talking about unachieved culture. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. But the return is hinged on when leaving in the first place, right? I mean, the hero's journey is typically undertaken in service to the community, not the individual. I mean, well, coming-of-age rites of passage utilize the individual by often bringing them into contact with their mortality in liminal realms or wild worlds. The goal is to immolate or kill the individual, the individual which traditionally would have been referred to as the child or the childhood of the initiate. You know, so tourism, on the other hand, I think feeds the individual I mean, how many people buy plane tickets to places they don't want to go to, right? How much of tourist travels are undertaken in service to their communities back home? I mean, that alone sounds ridiculous unless you're a missionary or unless everyone considers you to be a piece of shit. (laughs) But then what good are you doing somewhere else? I think we need to contend with the fact that any kind of touristic travel in our time undermines community, both at home and in the places people travel to. The founding myths of the West, according to me at least, are escape and exile masquerading as freedom, and the hero's journey becomes a way of mapping the masquerade, of using it as a pretext for a lack of community and a lack of initiation. I mean, I think all we have to do is ask, If we lived in an achieved culture with people who properly understood the consequence of your leaving, the consequence of your absence, and yet still with the capacity to cook you over the coals of inherited and tested initiatory rights, would we still be so quick to leave? Would the community still be so willing to let us leave? You know, maybe the hero's journey only exists if there was already a coherent, rooted community to leave in the first place. And what if there wasn't a need to leave? What then would become of the myth of the hero's journey? Another way of saying it would be, what does our willingness to believe in the hero's journey do to us in our time and place, in this time and place? 
What is its function? What are its consequences? Mm. I'd like to ask you one more question. Sure. Well, so you have a young son, a beautiful young son, and it's very possible that he'll reach an age, much like you did, where the open road calls upon him in some manner. And, you know, how do you think you would proceed knowing that some of your travels perhaps contributed to a, a sense of escapism? That's epidemic now in the culture and unbelievably consequential. You know, it's interesting as I, as I wonder that question as well. I mean, one thing comes to mind is, you know, by the time he's, let's say, 18, 19, you know, will there be cheap air travel, right? That's, you know, the first thing that comes to me. I mean, the, the futurists the, or the technocratic utopists would certainly say it, that to be so, but I know I'm not so sure, depending on if you look at certain variables. But the other thing is that if it is the case, if they are, if it is, quote, relatively inexpensive to fly and that possibility is there. I also wonder, as, as you walk around the supermarket and you see, you know, strawberries in winter, you know, as I do in the grocery mm-hmm. stores where I am, it's very hard to to not just say, oh, great, strawberries, right? Like, and not really wonder about the consequence of having fresh strawberries from likely Mexico or somewhere, you know, this time of year Mm. in the grocery store and that the cost does not reflect that at all, right? The cost is like, you know, X number amount. So it's hard to be able to sort of put on, let's say for him too, a a kind of heroic, and I use that purposely like, yeah, heroic capacity to not participate in a, in a kind of easily accessible, you know, quotation escapist or, or commodified industry, because of course there is some deep longing for that new horizons um, for novel experiences to be challenged. You know, all those things there are completely natural and, and necessary, especially for men. And so, you know, the only thing I can think to do is, is perhaps equip him as best I can with the degree of his consequence. Mm. Right. And that's the theme that's come up here a number of times because that, I guess that's the thing that is possible to do. And hopefully so when he's the right age, which is just around when puberty kicks in and hopefully there's some good men around me. And if I've lived my life in a certain way that I've, built those bonds of solidarity and trust that they would be the ones to come for him appropriately at so and guide him out in the woods somewhere, you know, hopefully with other young ones too, to be introduced bracingly in some ways to the bigger story. Mm-hmm. Right. And in that sense, it, it's sort of meant to be a kind of necessary trauma of the ego of the idea of one's own centrality in the universe, that they are the universe. And, Without that being interrupted, again, it's very difficult to persuade anyone otherwise, I mean, myself included. And so to me, that seems to be the only thing, or at least the direct thing that I might be able to do that would support his own sense of consequence in the world as he moves through these places and not pretend that isn't the case. And the other might be to properly craft a place for him to be witnessed and to be blessed as he heads out Mm. and to properly be gathered in upon his return and to be conferred upon him that he is different, that to give him that sense of that something did happen and likely would, should that be the case, 
and that that is a kind of soul food, soul hunger that I think men, especially young men, deeply need to feel a sense of consequence and, and you know, m- meaning is probably not quite the right word, but yeah, a real sense of, of participating in life in a deep way. And without that, of course, there's any number of distractions and, and numbing agents and spiritual just destitution that, of course, again, is so much of the story, particularly for young men as well, of, you know, all the way to suicide and, and the rest are mass shootings, you know, just to try to feel a sense of that I matter. And so to do those things that properly so a culture does would be, you know, where I would um, cast my lot. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much for that, Ian. Would you do us the honor of telling our listeners where they can find out more of about your work and the Mythic Masculine podcast? Absolutely. Uh, all the episodes are available on, you know, any of your favorite podcast platforms, search for The Mythic Masculine, as well as, of course, TheMythicMasculine.com, as well as if you feel called to offer up uh, a gathering of stories.com, which is, of course, the sort of sister project of bringing together storytellers, you know, artists, activists, poets, to really inquire, usually in a live format of uh, a sort of mythopoetic inquiry into the times, you know, big themes, things like masculinity, femininity, the pandemic, you know, and more to come. Maybe last thing, if I may, is, uh, of course, my work as a filmmaker, which I've been doing for a number of years. All of that is available, ianmack.com, I-A-N-M-A-C.com. Perfect. I'll make sure that all of those links are available on the endoftourism.com website. And on behalf of our listeners, I'd like to offer you a deep bow and a big hug for your willingness to to speak with us today. And uh, it's a great honor to see you, my friend, after... It seems like a very long time now. Mm. Indeed. Thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate it a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mythic Masculine Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please visit any of the major podcast platforms and leave a review. This helps spread the word and reach a wider audience. Also, if you'd like to join me for future live episodes, head to themythicmasculine.com and click Become a Supporter. You'll get access to behind-the-scenes updates, bonus episodes, and the ability to join live conversations before they're released to the wider public. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. Thanks for the consideration. Until next time.